Hey everyone, and welcome to season three of the show. This is your host, me, Matthew Kirby, and I can't believe we've come this far with our honest conversations, and we can't stop now. We are continuing to evolve and adjust to have those real conversations that we so desperately need. To my fans, thank you for your continued love and support of the show. To my first timers, hey y'all, thank you for joining us. We have some big changes on the horizon, ooh-wee, and I can't wait to spill the tea. In the meantime, in between time, thank you for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Honest Human Resources Podcast with your host, yours truly, me, Matthew Kirby, and today we're going to have a very dope, a very interesting conversation. You know, this is something that I've been wanting to chat about and thinking about this kind of topic, you know, even in today's world, you can't always chat about this topic with everyone, so you kind of have to pick and choose wisely. But needless to say, this is going to be an amazing show today. I have a very special guest. I think you all are going to enjoy her perspective. And then just above all, above anything else, just some great conversation that's to come. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump right into it. So Liz Swigert is a behavioral economist, author, speaker, educator, and activist living and working in Houston, Texas. Originally from New York City, Liz holds a BA from Rice University and an MBA from the University of St. Thomas in Houston. She is a PhD candidate at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Liz's doctoral work focuses on organizational leadership in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. Currently, Liz is on a mental health leave of absence from the big four public accounting firm, where she is a partner specializing in international transaction structuring, pricing, and execution. In addition to her professional work, Liz is also deeply involved in the community. She sits on the board of directors of Genesis Works Houston and serves as a mentor for American corporate partners. She supports Dive Inc, an accelerator and incubator specifically focused on founders who are women and people of color looking to grow their businesses at scale. Liz has been married to her husband, Mark, for 17 years, and together they have two young daughters. Hey, what's up, Liz? How you doing? I am doing great. I, I have to say, quite a quite a hype man. I really hope that I can. <laughs> I really hope that I can live up. I was listening to the intro and thinking, "Wow, I want to hear from her." Oh wait, <laughs> no worries. So th- no, no thank worries. you, thank you so much. That's it's incredibly generous of you, and I I have to I have to say right back that it's it's really it's my honor to to be joining you. The uh, the work that you've done. Uh, in in getting the Honest Human Resources podcast up and going, producing so much quality content, and really, as you said, bringing great conversations just in a short period of time is is honestly inspiring. So um, I'm glad to I'm glad to join the conversation, and I'm hoping that there is something that I can I can bring to to your audience, to your listeners, that uh, is insightful, helpful, um, but ab- above all, is is something that allows us to open up conversations more broadly because it's 
it's only in communication and connection with each other that we are going to solve the problems that are facing us as a, as a society and as a world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just one of those things where, you know, even like I was just saying, you know, sometimes, you know, we have to have these tougher or not as politically correct conversations, honestly, in order to, you know, make change and just be that change. So I'm looking forward to it. You know, we're going to, we're going to jump in shortly, but even as I was reading your bio real quick, you got to tell me more about, you know, this, this whole thing that you're looking at while you're getting your PhD and in this context of the fourth industrial revolution, can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what do you mean by that? All right. Well, just how long do I have? Because uh, obviously <laughs> something I'm, I'm super passionate about. So when, when you kind of think about how, how industry has developed in our society, in the 1770s, we got three major inventions. We got the steam engine, the cotton gin, and the spinning jenny. And that radically transformed the way in which commerce happened. Because instead of simply relying on people being able to produce goods and services essentially in their homes, we suddenly had the ability to do business at scale. We could do a whole lot in a short period of time compared to, compared to kind of where we were before. And then in the, that, so, so we call that period the first industrial revolution. And then there's two more that follow it. One in the 1850s, starting thereabouts with something called the Bessemer process, which allowed us to produce steel at scale. And then we uh -huh. had the electrification of factories. And you add on to that coming into the 20th century, you have the third industrial revolution, which we think of as the information age, right? Personal computing, uh, the birth of the internet and the space age. All of those things gave us the ability to, um, to automate processes and tasks, mm -hmm. but none of them really allowed us to substitute human labor in the workforce one for one with a machine. Everything still required human intervention. Well, now you get to this period that we're calling the fourth industrial revolution, and it's marked by the advent of technologies like Internet of Things, like blockchain, uh, like um, uh, drones, and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and machine learning. And these technologies are radically transforming the way in which work is done. And what it means for the leaders of, of organizations, whether they be commercial enterprises or, or they be social, social enterprises, is that how we conceive of working with people, how we think about labor getting done, whether it's human labor or it's machine labor, it's radically different than it's ever been before. This, is, this period of time is challenging everything we know about how we do performance management. It's challenging everything we know about how we compensate people for, for their work. And so my, my research is, is focused on how leaders and organizations look at the value that's created by labor, whether it's digital labor or it's human labor and how it is that they then uh, run their organizations in light of these new developments and, and this, new this new comprehension of how value is created. Gosh, you know, like, and I was like generally curious because I was reading, I was reading that, I was like, dang, I wonder, 
you know, what, what she's referring to. And I think just to hit that point, and of course, this show isn't about any industrial revolutions, but just to quickly hit on that point, you know, I feel like as things continue to evolve and change, you know, I'm, I'm calling it now, I'm going to place the bet on, you know, one day it's going to be possible to go through somebody's drive through and the person who takes their order can be working remotely. I'm trying to tell you it's coming versus them have to be there in person and exchange the money that way. We're going to be able to pay through it somehow through an app or something like that. Just so when things like this happen, positions like that and other frontline workers, it'll, it'll, it'll look totally different. So, you know, I, I think things are going to be interesting for sure. Maybe, maybe some of that iRobot uh, Will Smith will come true in the near future. So we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I, personally, I wouldn't take that bet because I think you're right. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think that day is, I, I think, frankly, that day is already here. Uh, yeah. it's, it's how widespread and, and how much that t- technology is going to proliferate and, mm-hmm. and what, what, it, uh, what it means for us as human beings trying to relate to one another as, as well as human beings who are trying to find meaning in our work. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, we'll just have to sit back and see how it plays out for sure. But, you know, before we, again, go down that part, you know, I just want to give the people, and I, I love, this is one of my favorite segments of the show. I love exploring and asking people not only their perception, but their thoughts. But the question that I'm going to ask you, and like I told you, even before we started recording, I am really excited to hear your answer about this. But, Liz, can you tell the people, how are you a human resource? Oh, I've been, I've been, I've been waiting for this question. I'm not a human resource. <laughs> Go I, off, I actually, Go uh-uh, I disdain, <laughs> I disdain this phrase. I just, uh-huh. it, it's a euphemism. Uh, to me, human resources is a euphemism. We are talking about human beings and we're talking about their labor. And uh-huh. when we, when we start to talk about human resource, you know where that language comes from? The industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. We didn't have human resources back when you had a weaver and you'd go to the weaver's house and you'd go and buy cloth from the weaver. The, the weaver wasn't a human resource. The weaver didn't have a human resources department. When, when we moved to industry at scale, we suddenly had to depersonalize the labor process. Too many people. You, can't, you cannot administer industry at scale and and do it in a way that is that re, that retains the individual characteristic retains the individualism of 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 the of the of the lone worker and so when i when i think about the term for human resource i i think of it really as as a um as a euphemism because mm-hmm. what we're talking about are human beings as the inputs of production and we're talking about commoditizing human labor, which is commoditizing human beings. And we're talking about people as we would, I mean, human capital, human, you know, human capital assets. Um, assets, those are things, those are objects. We are objectifying people. Uh, and so I, I, I firmly believe and agree that my, my labor is a service and it can be, it, I can sell my labor. Uh, and others can purchase my labor, but I, I am not, I am not an object. And frankly, other people aren't an object. 
And right. for me, the, the idea of, of human capital, human resource as a, um, as a way to cover the commodification of people, we have, a, we have a deeply troubled history in this country in particular with treating people as objects uh, and as assets to be bought and sold. And I, I, find, I find the traces and remnants of that that continue into our, our, current, our current industry and our, our current commerce to be abhorrent. And so I, I would like to see a, a change, and it's not about a change in language, it's about a change in perception. The, the perception is not that we have people that we can use to achieve um, our means, but rather that we have a connected community that is, is able to bring together people and their labor, as well as tangible assets, factory, you know, factory equipment, things of that nature, but that right. we, we treat people as, we treat people as people. Uh, we do not treat people as assets or resources. How dare we treat people as people versus assets and resources? Cause you know, that sounds too much like rights. So I got to ask you real quick, you know, instead of human resource, and I've seen these buzzwords, you know, across different organizations and how people refer to HR. Are you a fan of either? Let's see, what's the top two popular ones that I see outside of human resource? Are you a fan of either people operations or uh, what's the other one that I saw? Uh, people and culture. Are you a fan of any of those two? Uh, not particularly. I'm. I'm just. I'm personally. It's labor, right? Mm -hmm. I don't understand why. What we're talking about is we're talking we're talking about labor, right? We're talking about um, individuals and 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 then then in groups providing their labor as a service in furtherance of a of a task or a or some sort of larger vision, some sort of larger project. So mm -hmm. I, I I think that. You know, we can talk about we can talk about labor, we can talk about we can talk about um, people relations, we can talk about labor relations. Uh, but I think the key here is to keep the focus on on the fact that we are we are compensating people for the labor that they provide, and it is it, it is not the people that are that are the that are ours. Um, none of it, none of it is ours. It is instead a question of the labor as the input and providing a um, providing compensation that is in line with the value that's being created by that labor. Yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, when I when I really saw or read or just kind of heard your take for the first time, I think and I was saying to myself, I was like, you know what, this can be an episode all by itself. So while this isn't the episode topic for everyone that's listening, you know, I definitely had to have you to chime in on that real quick. So people are probably listening along, like, what the hell is the episode is about? So we're going to get there. You know, this episode today, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty amazing, especially from a perspective point of view. So we're going to be talking about whiteness at work. 
And I know you all may be thinking, like, whoa, where is he about to go with this? You know, he has a white woman talking about whiteness at work. Where are we getting ready to go? Well, guess what? Y'all about to find out. So, Liz, just thinking about this kind of topic, and I know we've had a couple other conversations outside of this, whether we're talking about whiteness at work, uh, white fragility, allyship, and the list goes on and on. You know, when we kind of think about, let's just pick on allies real quick. You know, there are some good allies when we talk about this space, especially in a corporate situation, but there are also bad allies. And to you, what have you seen that look like and how do you see that play out in terms of someone, you know, that may not be a minority or underrepresented group? How do those who are either privileged or majority how do they suck at being a good good ally? Again, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> first, I, I love, I, well, one, I love the fact that we have the opportunity to engage around this because to me, uh, whiteness, whiteness in the workplace is something that, as you said, um, it makes white people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, uh, when when you have the privilege of being in a majority position, you can demand that others keep silent so that you may feel comfort. So it's it's a it is a it is a very difficult conversation to have. Um, but again, it, it's it's so interesting to me that you brought up my research at the beginning of this because again, I, I think it, it it really it really all ties together. Our workplaces are are dominated by um, by whiteness in the sense that um, we 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 live in a society where um, we have patri- we have a patriarchal system we have we have a system by patriarchy i don't mean all men are bad um, mm-hmm. that's a, a very popular caricature um, right now i was about to say don't don't go bashing us all men liz Oh, 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 yes. No, hashtag, don't worry. Hashtag not all, right. all men. Um, just get that out there. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm married to one, so they can't be all that bad. <laughs> I, I, I want to I be really clear definitionally what I'm talking about. When I talk about something that's patriarchal, what I'm talking about is, is a particular culture. And a culture, um, what, we don't really often talk about what, it, what culture really means. Culture, a culture comes about because you have, you have a group of people who all share the same stories. And those stories reinforce for them what the rules are. They enforce for them what the standards, norms, and the rules are for their own personal behavior and their interactions with others in their environment. So a culture is really a group of people who share the same stories about how things really are. And so mm-hmm. people who believe, who, 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 share those, who share those stories, who have those common narratives, the more, the more narratives they share in common, the more things that they believe in common, the stronger their culture becomes. And so when you think about, when you think about the, and, and I can really, I, I want to be clear that this is a very American-centric um, conversation. The the um, the dynamics of, of our discussion would be very different um, in another country, particularly in a country that is is not majority, but it's not majority white. 
you would see a lot of the same, um, you'd see a lot of the same and similar themes, but it would, it would be a different conversation. So I'm, I'm specifically addressing American corporate culture here. When, when we think about what, what it means in, in our environment to have something that's patriarchal, uh, it means that the, the primary starting point is competition. And the, and the competition is the result of a mindset of scarcity. So when you think about how our organizations tend to operate, we perceive that there are limited resources and that the only way to have power is to have more resources than another person. That's, that's how you achieve success. At the end of the day, the person with the most toys wins, so to speak. I'm, so sure you've heard that phrase before. The yeah, idea behind the, the the idea behind the patriarchy is entirely one of competition and scarcity. And when when you have that as your starting point, it is extremely difficult to to try to get anyone to understand that it's actually possible for people to for multiple people to succeed. And in fact, by collaborating, by working together, as opposed to by competing, everyone can end up with more at the end of the day without anyone else having to have less. And so the, the difference that you have in mindset between a scarce competitive environment and an abundant collaborative environment are, are stark, truly remarkable. And we, we live in an environment that focuses on scarcity and rewards, and rewards competition, where power is handed out to those who have the most and mm. where those who have the least are, are put into positions where it is very difficult to, to, climb, to climb out of a hole that they are in. And so when you, when you think about, about what that kind of a system does, if, if you start off in a minority position, in other words, you have less capital, you, have, um, you, don't, you, do, you lack generational wealth, um, you do not have access and opportunity um, to, to gain the advantages of those who already have the scarce resources, then it creates a, an, it institutionalizes the system whereby um, whereby there are certain individuals who will be permanently disadvantaged in that system. And so when, when I think about the system that we live in from a corporate American perspective, we, we live in an environment that promotes competition and that has convinced us that there is only scarcity. And so these are the stories that have taken hold. And that is therefore the culture that has been established. And unfortunately, we have, have had this system in place for decades upon decades. And so it's inculcated at this point. When, when I think about what this means from, and, and then how do, how do we translate this to whiteness? The people who have been historically advantaged by the system are white. They're also predominantly male, but without question, they're white. And when I say they, I mean me. 
And so what what we have is a is a system that that is um, if you think about it like Vegas, where the odds are tipped toward the house. Uh, that is the system that we have, and we have a system where a, the, the predominant culture in the workplace is the one that has um, that has the majority status. So I'll take a I'll take a pause there and and see you know see your reaction, and and then I think we can <laughs> move from there. We can move from there into uh, in, into allyship, but I, I think it's really important to set the stage for you know what is the environment that we're actually talking about. Right. And, you know, just to just to jump in, I mean, I feel like, you know, you have you've hit on some really good points, a lot of them, really. But when I when I think about, you know, looking at this thing, especially being as being a minority, you all know, I, I said time to time and I'll even say it again. For those who are listening for the first time, I am a black male. Now, even within that, and I'm sure, we, you know, we may cover this later on in the uh in the episode, but you know, we understand that in most organizations, most spaces, you know, you do have that white dominance, right? So especially as the white men, like you said, Liz, and even when we think about even outside the white culture, you know, there are there are realities that even we face as minorities where it kind of goes back to, okay, men, generally speaking, regardless of what color you are, tend to have, you know, a little more social capital than everyone else, especially women as a collective whole. So I'm talking about black folks, Hispanic folks, white folks, you know, whatever folks you are. And just thinking about that, when I think about even diversity and inclusion, and I know we can definitely take this another way, I feel like, and I've said this in a couple of different forms before, but you know, it seems like this whole notion of diversity and inclusion to me is rooted in whiteness, right? When the buzzwords and all that started coming out, you know, my gut was just telling me, you know, while it on paper, it seems real good, there's there's some fine print that I'm missing about this whole thing. And then even just thinking about that on a more practical level, you know, when I think about bigger companies and things of that nature, it's going to be DNI related initiatives and work and programs and things of that nature up to a certain point. When we think about big companies out there, you know, it's, and I'm rarely pessimistic, so I'm going to use my one token probably for like the next six months, but, you know, it's rarely that we're going to see a huge swing in demographics in bigger companies. You know, from my perspective as a minority, white people are probably going to stay in power. Now, they may invite, you know, a few more of us in, but, you know, we got to be clear that we aren't just going to see the overarching demographic of most organizations change. And we can break that down on so many different levels when we talk about, you know, from a employee body standpoint, just the general population, uh, we can talk about that from a product inclusion perspective. You know, I was just telling someone the other day, you know, how long did it take, you know, like most, um, like cell phone makers to, especially with the emojis to, you know, finally have emojis of color. You know, it was always kind of like the, uh, the smiley faces 
or the, the lighter color emojis for a while. So, you know, yes, while we can or could celebrate, you know, some of the small victories, I always like to make it clear, and especially for my listeners, you know, these DNI efforts and inclusion and things like that, they ha- they're, they're going to have a stopping point eventually. You know, just because, and Liz, you was hinting at it, you know, when we talk about the resources and the power dynamic and that tug of war, you know, hey, we're, we're only going to get to a certain point. And even more practically than that, you know, I'm thinking about that whole kind of dynamic, especially in the example that you use of, you know, he who has kind of like the most toys win. And for those of y'all who are listening, I got kiddos myself. And I'm thinking, I'm like, man, my girl is older. She's my firstborn. And my uh, my son is younger in this case. So he's like six months. And I'm just looking around, like, even even as we record this and just looking around, um, you know, at things in the house, it's just one of those situations where I'm like, man, I think, I think my daughter, she has the monopoly on the toys right now. You know, so when her brother gets a little older, and he gets more curious and wants to grab stuff, I'm going to see that seemingly similar kind of power struggle between two kiddos with toys that we oftentimes see in the world as a whole, and especially in the workplace, you know, speaking on this this aspect of, you know, white people having most of the toys or the bigger sandbox or any of that. So, you know, that's kind of how I feel about that. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's something to really be mindful and really be practical about understanding. And especially from your viewpoint, just thinking about how those who have the power aren't the best allies. It's really important to know the differences of someone who is in that privileged class, who are good allies and someone who isn't. So, I often see this, and I'm going I'm to get your take on this pretty soon, Liz. I often see this from a minority perspective, bad attempts at trying to relate and being an ally. What have you seen or have you ever, you know, you yourself been kind of like that bad ally before? Well, I had to learn how to become an ally. So, yes, I was a, <laughs> I was a oh, I've been a horrific ally. Um, uh-huh. And and again, I, I I appreciate. I mean, I appreciate all of all of your points because I I think that you're, you know, you're spot on. If if you start off, if you start, if if you say we're going to run a race, but I get to start at the halfway point, and you've got to start, and you've got to start 300 yards before the start line, I can mm-hmm. tell you in advance which one of us is going to win, even if I'm not, even if I'm nowhere near as fast as you are. I I would say in the in allyship there are there are and and I I speak I, I speak as one of them there are so many well-intentioned white people and um, there are there are folks who um, and and this is pretty much where I started out I started out with this belief that um, white fragility or the um, the 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 nervousness and anxiety that white people exhibit when confronted with issues of race, particularly racial inequality. Um, the tendency of, of white people when, when exposed to that uh, is, to, is to deflect 
and to um, to get, to do uh, the routine where um, we become we become extremely fragile. Frankly, we we get we get yep. very upset and we take it yep. very personally that anyone could possibly suggest that we're a product of our environment because I'm not like that at all. And and in truth, I I have been. I have been socialized and raised in an in an environment where um, where whiteness has has been institutionalized. White white is right. Now I I was raised by parents who um, who, who have who are who have also been been anti racism who are also anti racism activists. So. It's possible. The thing that's so challenging about this is that it is entirely possible to be raised um, by and and given values that are that are anti-racist and anti-white supremacist, but we are still living in the matrix. We're still yeah. living in the system, and so it means that we have to be. I personally, I can only speak for myself. I have to be on guard all the time because my natural tendency is to do what I have been socialized by my environment to do. And I, I have to be incredibly mindful of the way in which I, I behave, of how I behave and, and how, and how I act and what I do with the privilege that I have and recognize the privilege that I have. I, I refer to it often as, as uh, my life being TSA pre-check in the sense that um, no one no one considers me a threat, right? I don't I don't have to take my laptop out of the bag. I don't I don't have to take off my belt. Like the the the, the TSA folks apologize for inconveniencing me, uh, and because because who would ever think that I could possibly be a threat? Whereas to to grow up uh, and to to live as as a as a black man or woman in in our society um, as as uh, Latinx as as any other as as a member of any other minority group the expectations again the norms the the stories that we tell ourselves the stories that we tell ourselves are are that that minorities are threats. And and whites are whites are non-threatening, and so when when I think about what all this means in the context of allyship, particularly particularly with with uh, younger professionals, I, I think that there is that there that there is a great desire, and, and frankly, there's a great need to find uh, sponsors, to find people in an organization who are. Um, a little higher up on on the food chain, so to speak, who will uh, advocate for you as a professional, and will advocate for you when it comes to performance management, when it comes to compensation, uh, when it comes to promotion, when, when it just comes to to everyday opportunities, whether it's being able to work on a extremely exciting or um, high profile project. Or it's being given the benefit of the doubt if something if something doesn't go well, and having having allies in the workplace, um, I think that you know you can kind of break it down into you can have people who are mentors, and those are people who give you good information. Those are those are like signposts, right? Those are those are people who can help point the way for you 
and can act as a sounding board. They are not people who are going to go to the mat for you. They are not people who are going to put their own political um, and social capital on the line to support you. That, that's a sponsor. And that's, that's, in my mind, that's true allyship. And where, where I have seen, and, and again, I speak for myself, where, where I have seen my, myself falter um, and truly fail as an ally um, has, has, been a few, has been a few areas. One, I, um, I have seen myself be, um, oh, here, I'm getting fragile on you. Um, I frankly, I've seen myself. Trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to call myself out as I'm doing it. Um, yeah, I have, I I've seen it. myself. I, well, I've seen myself take on this white savior complex, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, look, here's the well-intentioned white woman who's going to sweep in and fix everything, um, and I'm going to do it by 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 applying my my signature brand of, um, you know, humble humble brilliance. To to tell uh, a a, min- a minority a minority professional um, what's really going on around them, and it comes off as incredibly patronizing. And not only that, but generally speaking, someone who has lived as a as a minority in our culture for their entire life has a pretty good idea of when they're being marginalized or discriminated against. They don't need a well-intentioned white woman to tell them. Uh, and, and especially what, 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 my, what my value in that situation is, I have learned as an ally, um, is, is not to come in and act like I am going to save them. Because frankly, um, they and, it, it, is, it has been the emotional labor of, of um, of minorities. It's been the emotional labor largely of black and brown people who have educated me about my own shortcomings. And so it's not asking somebody to do additional emotional labor. Uh, the, the, role, the role of an ally is not to come in as a savior. The role of an ally is to come in as what I like to think of as a lead blocker. Like what I have learned over time is that my job, my job isn't to, to sort of come in as the fairy godmother and wave the wand and all of a sudden everything's fixed. It doesn't work that way. My job is to, get, is to put myself, if I need to, physically in front, of, in front of the person for whom I'm trying to be an ally and block the, block the things that are coming at them that are there to harm them. And it's to use my privilege to move the things out of the way so that they can be successful. And it's to only do it as directed, right? If you, if yeah. you think about it, like somebody puts their hand on your back and pushes you toward those things that are coming for them and that they need moved out of the way. It's not my job to decide that. I can offer some counsel as to, you know, in this situation, having been through something, having, having seen, having been through something similar and seen the way things play out. These are, these are, these are some of the issues I think that you can, you can anticipate. But what I, one lesson that I learned of of a hard way, and, and I had quite a bit of work to do to, um, 
to make amends for it uh, was was really learning that it is absolutely criminal of me to tell a a to tell a woman particular to tell a woman of color but particularly to tell a black woman what what I would do if I were her that's it is the least useful piece of information I can possibly provide because the yeah. consequences <laughs> for behave the consequences to her for doing what I would do naturally are so far off what the consequences are for me I am allowed to be angry in public without consequence. Generally speaking, my, my black female colleagues do not have the same privilege. And so as an ally, I think, you know, when I think of, of telling folks, you know, well, what do you look for in an ally? I've gotten away from what do you look for in an ally and more focus on these are the, these are the, bright, these are the bright red flags that you need to run away from. One of them is somebody who says, well, if I were you, this is what I would do, because it shows an absolute lack of understanding of the structural inequalities that exist. The, the second one that I see is the emotional vampirism, and um, that, I think, largely comes out of the white savior complex. I, I always love to know, like, how how much am I helping you? Why don't you tell me how miserable you are and how awful everything is? And tell me often so that I will then feel even better when I swoop in and save the day. If somebody is really interested in, in your story, then they need to open up and offer their own emotional vulnerability before demanding yours. There's If there's something that I see, it is... It is um, Minority professionals doing incredible amounts of emotional labor that that they do not need to be doing. They that they are essentially it's being demanded of them in a completely unfair fashion. Um, and and the last thing I, I sort of want to put in here on on the allyship has to do with um, defense. What. Um, one of the one of the lessons that I I learned early on it was that um, the tendency um, and this is a this is an aspect of an element of white fragility um, the tendency when um, when a minority professional comes to comes to you as their ally and tells you about an instance with another professional uh, and it's it's almost always a white professional. And they tell you about something really egregious that has happened to them that that really was came as the result of of their interaction with this typically white professional the The natural white fragility instinct is to uh, is to gaslight the person of is to gaslight the person of color. It is to to come to the defense of the white person, even if that white person doesn't even really like the other white person. Hmm. It is it's when 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 someone comes to an ally and says, I had I had a very unpleasant interaction with person A. And and the, the ally says, oh, my gosh, tell me about it. And, and, and the, the, um, the individual goes on to describe a really 
frankly, a, a, a racist act on the part of, of person A, the ally will, will say to them things along the lines of, oh, I know them. They, I think you just misunderstood. That isn't really what they meant. They didn't mean to do that. And they come in with that before they, they ever stop to acknowledge the validity of the experience, the, um, the honesty and authenticity of the feelings that the individual has. Um, instead, it's an automatic jump to defense of, of the, the white individual. And so what I, what I would say is that in, in looking for and, and finding allies in, in any sort of organizational space, the key question isn't how do I how do I spot a good ally? Um, in many cases, it's how do I how do I quickly identify a bad one? Uh, because on the surface, most most folks don't look like bad allies, and on top of that, very few people who are being bad allies would recognize the behaviors that they are doing as bad allyship. So I, I've learned a lot over, over the years, and I, I have tried as much as, as much as it has been possible to um, make amends to, to the people whose experiences ha helped me to learn these lessons, because again, it's asking for a lot of emotional labor on the part of minorities. Um, and I'm, I'm far from perfect as an ally myself now. But I, I think that the most important thing that, that white allies can do is to, is to be vigilant and, and obsessively mindful of our own privilege and the ways in which we can, the, the, the things that we must do such that we do not betray the privilege of being an ally because it is a privilege to be an ally. It is, it is not, it is not something that is a right for us. Yeah. And I just think when I think about this whole thing of allyship and just, you know, someone white or even, even of a, a different background wanting to be an ally, I look at it as a filtering process. You know, you, you talked about already that, you know, Hey, sometimes, you know, white people go into defense mode or, you know, defend someone else's attention or intention, excuse me, without really understanding or really just being a good ear to someone's experience. Boom, that's a red flag right there. It's one of those things where I feel like there's a point of vulnerability that oftentimes white people don't offer up. So even if you're trying to relate, in which we know it doesn't happen in the way that it could or should or would be ideal to happen, but it's one of those things where even if you can't relate to racism yourself, if anything, be an active listener. If anything, and here's a comparison that comes up in my head, it's one of those things, and I don't even know why it popped up, because as you all know, I live in California, so I haven't seen snow in a couple of years, but it's one of those things where you know how when it does snow and they need to clear off the highways, you get the snow plows. You know, we don't need no super savior. Sometimes we just need a plow. 
to help us navigate our journey and get through life, corporate life, whatever the situation is, a little better. Because as you all know, if you've ever lived in the climate where it does snow, you know, even though the plows do come through, you're still going to have slick spots sometimes. And it's one of those things where, you know, we need to be able to be behind a plow in the sense that, you know, hey, we appreciate you, you know, listening and empathizing with our very real struggles, whatever that may be. But we also would like to either have some of these obstacles removed, and sometimes white people can talk to white people the best, even about minority struggles and things of that nature, unfortunately, because I think in a more ideal world, you know, whether I'm Black, Hispanic, any other minority race, whatever the case may be, you know, I would I would love to be able to say, hey, boss, let's just say if they white, hey, boss, you know, I'm really, <clears throat> I'm really experiencing, you know, these microaggressions or, you know what, remember when we was in that meeting, you know, me and Johnny, we worked on the project, but you addressed him as if he was the brainchild of the project when it was really me or, you know, hey, you know, this customer, this client really pissed me off. And, you know, I noticed that Susie or Karen can vent about it in a way that's perceived a little differently than if I or my other coworker vents about it. Because if we vent about it, now all of a sudden we got to deal with the stereotype and the perception of angry black person on the job, which may or may not make you all feel threatened. So just being able to realize that having this understanding and intersectionality isn't a one-to-one ratio, that's okay. Black folks, minorities, whoever, we're not looking for that one-to-one matchup like, hey, you tell me about your racist time. All right, hey, you tell me about your racism scenario. All right, cool, you tell me about yours when we're addressing, you know, white people. But it's one of those things where, we realize that even though it shouldn't be this way, you know, we realize it's like, okay, when we do get a good ally, you know, sometimes you all, I don't know what the magic sauce or the magic potion is, but for some reason, white people listen to other white people before they listen to minorities. Without us, and let's just look at this from a historical perspective, without us having to riot or protest or do any of the other things that, you know, we felt like we had to do from a historical perspective to be heard, quote unquote. So just kind of thinking about that, you know, we don't want superheroes, right? We want, we truly want those really good allies to understand. And really just, if anything, at a real practical level, just to make folks aware, like I know, um, you know, you were you were mentioning how, and I'm just trying to remember the particular part I want to take on. You were mentioning how you were facing different issues and different things with yourself at being a, a bad ally. We just want that awareness that, hey, you know, I haven't been perfect, but this is how I want to change it. This is how I want to change the course. And then also just thinking about 
really having us or what's the deal with, I would say, making us, not even making us, but having us as minorities relive these past traumas only to later defend someone else's intentions. Like, what the hell? Right? That's probably like a lot of people be thinking about that. So just thinking about all of those things that I said, you know, that would be, that would make this allyship or this partnership that much more better. And just segueing into thinking about, and I know earlier I mentioned, you know, DNI and all of that. You know, do you feel or what's your take? And I know we kind of talked about this a little earlier, but what's your take to when I was initially mentioning to you as white women being the new minorities? Can you give me your take on that? Absolutely. So I I think that the for me when I when I think about white women white women as a minority we are uh we we are in a remarkably privileged place as a white woman there are very few spaces that um I I don't feel entitled to um uh to to uh inhabit so and there are the 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 few spaces that as a white woman I can't access are largely those that are white male dominated otherwise otherwise my my whiteness makes up for makes up for a lot makes makes up a lot of privilege and so i I think that when you when you look at when you look at the the history of of what feminism um, has done. It has largely benefited white women, and um, trickle down feminism hasn't exactly been a thing. I, I think that there's there's a particular um, there's a particular scholar. She's a legal scholar and philosopher who um, whose work really bears mentioning here, and that's Kimberly Crenshaw. She was she was the scholar who um, in the 80s gave us. Um, the term intersectionality. She's the one who first identified and wrote about it, and it was in the context of it was in the context of the law. But I, I think that what 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 the key here is is that um, women women are are a minority in our corporate workplace. We're not a minority when you look at the um, the demographics of our country. In fact, when you look at the demographics of our world, for white women, we have we have access and opportunity um, because of our whiteness that our that that uh, women of color do not do not share in equal measure. And so I think that there that there is a recognition that um, women have have certain disadvantages in in the corporate in the corp, in our current corporate culture without question. However, I think that um, equating the um, the challenges that white women will face with those that will be faced by um, by minority women is false. And so I think that there are um, that it is it is possible to be a it is possible to be a minority 
definitionally, um, but to not have the same experience of disadvantages um, as others. And so I think that there has been a lionization, if you will, of, um, of white women as, as, a, as a now seemingly successful minority group. Um, but I think that, that when we consider intersectionality and what it means to have multiple identities um, lived out at the same time by, by the same person, we start to see how um, there, isn't, there isn't really, um, there, there's, not even equi there's not equity within minority. Yeah, and I think, you know, to that point, it's, it's an interesting thing that you kind of bring up, you know, when we think about intersectionality and how we can fit into so many either boxes or bubbles or, you know, whatever you want to call it at the same time. It's like, okay, you know, from my perspective, it's like, okay, huh, that's interesting. She's, a, you know, a minority from nine to five. But outside of that, you know, she goes back to being the majority. Like it in my mind, I'm thinking of this the switch where, you know, folks who fit that bill can just flick it off and on in that sense. And when I think about, you know, just other minorities and just underrepresented folks, it's like, wow, you know, our switch is broken, quote unquote, in the sense that you know, our switch is on all the time, right? It's not a dimmer. It's just a light switch that's always on. And just being able to navigate not only corporate life, not only the corporate aspect, but to then come out and also deal with what's going on in the world, wherever you are, wherever that may be, you know, is it a thing where, you know, I have to put up with BS at work then just to be, you know, driving home, God forbid, I get stopped by a cop. That's another situation. Just to be, you know, done with getting that whole situation over with to only go to a store just to be washed at, just to go home and then wash, rinse, and repeat it again over and over and over and over and over. You know, it's 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 so different. And I tell I tell my host, I even tell myself, I tell everybody that regardless of whatever topic we're talking about on this show, we can't take it all in one episode. So that's never the intention of any show that I publish or produce. It's just to get the ball going or make it move a little faster. Sometimes even stir the pot. Liz, I remember when you called me provocative and I was like, I never thought about it like that, but I like that you had that perception because some some of these conversations, some of these things are tough. You know, whether people look at it as stirring the pot or people look at it being spicy or even in my words, being honest. It's just one of those things where these kind of conversations need to be had and need to be felt. Like sometimes these conversations are a little thick you know, like a, like a big porterhouse and you can't eat it all at once. You got to take it all bit by bit. Yes, there's going to be progress, but as I said earlier, up to a certain point, 
And again, I'm going to make that to I'm going to make that another episode in and of itself because we do need to talk about well, what happens when DNI hits his peak, flattens out, and then goes back down like any any other curve we've experienced in our lives. But that's on another that's on another tangent, another episode. So you know, just thinking about everything that we talked about and spoke of, I I just want to say. As a black man to a white woman, thank you for not only coming on on the show, but thank you for being vulnerable. You know, we don't we don't get this all the time from white folks. So I think anyone who's listening to this, anyone who's been a part of this, whatever your interaction with this episode is, you know, I hope that you've gained and learned something from this. It's good to see this perspective. You know, me, you know, and this is this is a part of season three, but it's one of those things where it's like, you know what? Trying to get some white people on the show because we need that diverse perspective. Hey, what is it like to have that kind of privilege? Hey, what's it like to have that kind of advantage? So Liz, I just want to thank you for that. And I know we can go on all day, every day for the rest of our lives about this, but I think this is a a really great start and it's been a dope conversation for sure. Well, thank you. And thank you. Thank you again for having me on. And uh, just, I mean, for the opportunity to have the dialogue, I, I want to, I want to do everything. I, you, you, you said something, you know, what, what is it like to have that kind of privilege? The answer is that it's awesome. And Therefore, everybody should live with that level of privilege. It's not about taking away from others. So to, to, it's, not about, it's not about gaining power by taking away. It's about finding ways for us to all have the access and opportunity that we should have as human beings. And so I, you know, I, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. I think that this these kinds of conversations, you're right, they're honest. It's, it, has, it has nothing to do with um, whether or not it fits any political agenda. It has to do with whether or not we are human beings who are capable of uh, connecting with one another in a meaningful way and working uh, to share our insight, to share, to share our support for one another. So um, thank you uh, again. Thank you to everybody who, who listened to the episode. And I just, I just wish that, that, you know, Matt, you and, and, you know, everybody who's listening, I hope that you are mm-hmm. staying safe and well, this is a tumultuous time. And I, uh, my, my heart goes out to all, all of those people who are, um, who are struggling and especially those, those who are working on the front lines. Oh yeah, for sure. And shout out to them. Absolutely. It's uh, hopefully folks get to see, you know, what, what those kind of workers and employees and everyone else who's involved goes through. But I will say before we go, Liz, where can they find you at? How can they connect with you? You know, some folks may be like, wow, she was really open and honest and transparent. You know, I want to follow up with her. So how can folks get a hold of you? Well, I, I am, I am very happy to have people hit me up on LinkedIn uh, you can you can find me at Liz Swigert. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter at a mother of a job. Uh, you can hit me up on Insta. Uh, I am the great Miss Liz. So I'm 
more than happy to uh, to connect with anyone um, for the cause. This is uh, this is something that we're all in together. Got you. Well, no, I appreciate that. And for those who you, of you that are listening, maybe this is your first time. Feel free to connect with me and connect with the host. When in doubt, check out any social media. You can find us at Honest Human Resources Podcast, whether that's IG, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it, we're probably on it. If you want to send me a message, if you have any suggestions for additional guests who want to continue the conversation, feel free to send me an email. Guess what? It's at Honest Human Resources Podcast at gmail.com. So you know how I do and how we do collectively. You know, this has been another dope awesome, thick, honest conversation. And we're going to do it again next week. So until then, y'all stay tuned. This has been another episode of the Honest Human Resources Podcast.